0: Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the DailyDownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it DailyDownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, DailyDownForce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out DailyDownForce.com. That's DailyDownForce.com. And I'll see you in
1: for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand. Pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first steel they built, I bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the, the pliers had been red before the paint had worn yeah. off.
2: cars and there were
1: really no match but he thought he was doing pretty good and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and i was the chicken and so he ran off the boat <laughs> and actually he was the guy who who caught junior johnson at his daddy still when junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar fence <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, The Seen Bolt Podcast. hello my name is rick houston and welcome to the scene vault podcast your source for all things nascar history presented by las vegas motor speedway america's racing show place
4: earnhardt would say to us boys we're making history and you didn't think about it you know you were just wanting to get through your job and we we didn't slow down and enjoy the moment alan's so embarrassed he's got his uniform on and Earnhardt is saying, Alan Quickie, right here. <laughs> yeah, at at Quincy's. Anybody wants a autograph? And then, <laughs> yeah. And he loved it, loved it, loved it. And they put all the templates on the car. So we got done. We passed inspection. So then we got ready to put the car cover over the car. And the car cover wouldn't fit. The car was, I think it was four inches longer in the rear and three inches longer <laughs> in the front. And everybody thought that, you know, chocolate was a. Uh, Hell's Angel or or whatever. And that <laughs> yeah. da, David was a preacher and and you know Will Lynn was a rock star. And I mean we had we had everything covered. Now up. what was your role in, in that? So I was a yeah. designated driver.
5: The day NASCAR and all of us associated
4: any anyway
5: with NASCAR. Forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello everyone. I'm Steve Wade.
1: And my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the same vault podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, I drove the pace truck last night up at Lonesome Pine and old Ronnie Thomas rode shotgun with me for the first race. <laughs> well, here you are. So I guess everything went okay. <laughs> I tried to get him to go for a joyride around Coburn there. Before the race, but he was too busy. He was being adored by his public on pit road in the pit party, so I couldn't tear him away from that. Well, I don't
5: blame him. I, he may have seen you driving, deciding riding with you any longer than necessary would not be a good thing.
1: Come on, man. <laughs> Come on.
5: I noticed Ronnie Thomas did something that you haven't done yet. <laughs> Ronnie Thomas done, has done a lot I haven't done yet, but <laughs> but. I said, I'd ride in the truck with you, Rick, and I'm going to do that someday. Someday? Well, yeah. That doesn't sound very specific. I can't be specific right now. I can just tell you, Rick, it's going to happen.
1: Well, okay, that's fine. Whatever. But I can tell you this. Riding with you in the pace truck would be one thing, and riding with Ronnie Thomas in the pace truck is something else altogether. That was an experience. I just bet. <laughs> now, I did think that Ronnie was going to be in the pace truck the whole night, but Mark Ebert had invited Ronnie and his wife and Ronnie's buddy, Rick Carrico up to the suites. And so I got to poke at Ronnie a little bit and tell him that he was big time in me and going up <laughs> to the suites <laughs> instead of being down in the pitch with a little old scrubs like me driving the pace truck. And of course he's a star now that he's been on the scene Ball podcast. Oh, absolutely.
5: And going to the suites, come on, when you're invited up there, you're a VIP. Now, you're not a VIP sitting in the pace truck, that's for sure. Or oh, you might be to the pace truck driver, but nobody else thinks anything about it.
0: What got
1: into you this morning? <laughs> I'm just trying to tell you the truth here. Who pooped on your Pop Tarts? <laughs> Well, I don't know, Steve, you got to cut me a little bit of slack because after driving the pace truck all night up at Lawson Pine, I didn't get home this morning until 2.30. <laughs> good
5: night. And I, I to, mean, good night.
1: <laughs> I literally went in, brushed my teeth, took my medicine, laid down. I had not taken my shoes, socks, shirt, or jeans off. I was exhausted. Yeah, I don't that's... know how I
5: got home last night. Uh, <laughs> Well, Rick, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, not knowing how you got home.
1: Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the first of what will be three installments of our epic interview with Richard Childress, racing legend, Danny Lawrence. And this week, Danny talks about his time as a high school record driver, getting the engines he helped build for Dell Earnhardt to last the magic that happened when they did find some reliability and being part of one of the most storied teams in NASCAR history.
5: I've known Danny a lot of years, ever since he's been with Richard Childress Racing, and they said he was one of the top engine builders in all of NASCAR.
1: Then in our second segment, we're going to do something a little bit different. Ah, forget that. <laughs> we're going to do something way different than anything we've ever done before last week. NASCAR debuted the very best thing to happen in celebration of the sports history since you and I started doing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And let's go ahead and throw the reopening of North Wilkesboro Speedway into the mix. But the classics.nascar.com website is freaking awesome. NASCAR has uploaded more than a thousand races, and it's got a lot of fans of NASCAR history Really excited.
5: Yeah, I have seen it, Rick, and you're right.
1: It is a
5: NASCAR gold mine.
1: I think of all the races that Sandy Estep recorded on VHS, then transferred over to DVD, then gave them all to me. Steve, she gave me a collection of about 400 DVDs. Now, I did not know that, Rick. Man. It's one of the most priceless things that I own because it came from Sandy. Mm-hmm. I understand. And all those races now, Steve, are on the NASCAR Classics website. Now, it doesn't yet include Busch Series races or truck races, but it's got a bunch of Grand National slash Wednesday Cup slash NASCAR Cup
5: events. Yeah, you're right, Rick. A uh, bunch, just about everyone you can think of is now available on video on that site. Unreal.
1: So listener Leslie Jackson tweeted last week and asked if there would be any possibility of you and I doing something called an MST3K podcast of one of the races on the NASCAR Classics website. Now, Steve, I had zero idea what that meant, but here's what I got out of Leslie's explanation. It has something to do with a show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, I've never seen that show, but... I know. Wait a minute, Rick. I have. I have
5: seen it a couple times. I've got to be honest with you. I haven't watched it all the way through. The format is: there's a movie playing, and there's three guys in silhouettes sitting in chairs as they would be in a theater. All right, and these guys are commenting on what they're seeing on the screen, and like they're just talking what they think about the the uh, movie or some little side bits about the movie. One of them looks like a robot or an alien really and i think you'd fill that role very nicely
1: (laughs) you had to throw that in there didn't you i'm good you just had to throw that in there didn't (laughs) you well you know what that sounds like fun so that's what we're going to do for our second segment if you're listening to this and you want to join in go to exactly the two hour mark of the 1998 daytona 500 on nascar classics and when i say hit play the podcast and the race broadcast will sync up and it will hopefully be like you and me and Steve and Danny Lawrence are watching the race together.
5: Danny is going to be with us on this one. He may not know what he's in for. I don't know what I'm in
1: for. (laughs) (laughs) Danny built the engine that Dale Earnhardt used that day. So he is the perfect person to join this. So we're going to give it a shot and see what happens. We may be a show about NASCAR history, but we are all about some innovation. (laughs) And again, I want to thank Leslie Jackson for the idea. So hopefully this will work and our listeners will enjoy it and maybe it won't and they won't, (laughs) but one of the most unpredictable statements that anybody could ever utter is, Hey, we've never done it that way before. (laughs) And this isn't something that we're going to do every week here on the same vault podcast, because obviously everybody who listens to the show, isn't going to be in front of a computer or television and be able to follow along. We're just giving it a trial run and seeing what happens. This is Daytona testing before the 500.
5: All right, there you go. We ask each and every one of our listeners to be kind.
1: <laughs> Finally, Steve, there will not be a zoom call this week. Uh Uh Let's just put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners, if you possibly can consider supporting us on a monthly basis, you can do that via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast, or if you would prefer to do a one time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journals, owner of the same brand.
4: So, where are you from originally? So, I was born and raised in Clemens, North Carolina. Right? Where are you down really? I, yeah, I've got a really good story about how how I got hired at Richard Childress Racing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back in the day, and I graduated from school in, in 1980, West Forsyth High School there in Clemens. Always been a car guy. Love cars, actually. My senior year, I had bought a wrecker, and I, <laughs> I, that's how, I, that's how yeah. I made my side money. And, uh, and then in 81, uh, the guy I bought my wrecker from on the Independence Towing in Mount Airy, And he's like, we've been invited to to tow at Rockingham. And he said, I'd love for you to bring your record. So 81 and 82, uh, I was one of the record drivers with my own record at Rockingham for the cup race, which was uh, always was a race fan and this and that. So uh, how
1: old were you at the time?
4: uh, So I was 22 at the time. So then I went to work at Modern Chevrolet. Uh, I had went to Davidson County community college and got business administration and auto mechanics and a really good friend of mine, Bobby Moody that I had met, he had worked at modern Chevrolet in the body shop. And then he had went to work for Richard Childress racing. Richard Childress had got Piedmont airlines as a sponsor and Bobby was the body man. So Bobby had called me a few times said I need some help here and there. And so I would go and, and, uh, helped bobby change all the cars over at nighttime when when I wasn't in school and it wasn't working and uh I helped bobby and and me and bobby had been friends bobby was an bobby is an incredible body guy and he uh those cars were immaculate and bobby was pretty much doing it all himself so I was his I was bobby's helper and so working for free at RCR and then uh, what year was this this was in 82 82 and eighty two and eighty three. So so then, Richard had saw my worth ethics and this and that. And we had a they had a lot of engine trouble. Lula Rosa at the time was the engine builder, and uh, Richard was like, "Hey, we've got some really good sponsors coming on. Would you be interested in coming and tearing down engines and for Lula Rosa and pulling them apart and helping us get all this stuff straightened out?" And I'm like, "Okay, I I love engines. I've always." So I came in and uh, got hired in '84. So I came in and uh, we'd just built a new shop on Gumtree Road, the engine shop. Yeah. So I had the car shop and then the engine shop. So went in and and there were there were about six engines that were blown up at the time. And uh, Richard actually. He was—he did it all. Richard knew how to build engines, build gears, build transmissions, build cars. So my first few days, it was working in between Lula Rosa and Richard was down there with us, tore engines apart, cleaned them up, learned how to uh, get them ready to assemble back again. And and you know, there's only a few guys. We had a, a cylinder head guy, a machinist guy that did everything. He did machine works on the block, did machine works on the heads, and then we had a, a engine assembler in Lula Rosa. So I was pretty much the cleanup guy there through the years, and um, so then we turned everything around. We worked night and day, and then uh, so and and then that was '84. Then we came back and started winning championships after that, and it kind of took off as we went. Um, Lou was there till I think the end of '88, and then Eddie Lanier came in, and and Lou and I were really tight together. And then Eddie Lanier, when he came in, you know, I was Eddie's right-hand man, started building qualifying engines and this and that. And then Eddie wanted to slow down a little bit. And uh, Spinny Clendenin was our, one of our – he started off as – like I did yeah. at the same time I did. He was our machinist, and then then he became engine builder. And after that, Earnhardt's like, okay, we're having a 31 car here, and I want my own guys. I want my own engine builder. I want to be able to – to have somebody that I can sit down and, and figure this stuff out with together. So, 98, I became the chief engine builder the year we won the 500. And so, that's my claim to fame, I guess yeah, you could say. Yeah. So, uh, as years went by, uh, you know, when we lost Earnhardt, it was it was devastating, of course. And Kevin came in and did a great job, but I, I had I had worked my guts out so hard for all those years, kind of got burnt out and wanted to slow down. So, I went to Richard at the end of 2001 and said, man, I a lot of pressure. Can't. I'd like to step back from being the chief engine builder. And, and so he's, you know, Richard's like, I have all these special projects that we want to do. So I, I kind of stepped back, and uh, we worked on all kinds of special projects. Had GM Goodwrench as a sponsor, and we did our own valve covers and air cleaners and, you know, I was Richard's go to guy, special projects or, or, or whatever, and, and still worked in the engine shop, uh, went to the racetrack, still tuned engines and did and did and did. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's crazy through the years how, how time flies. And then fuel injection came into the play. And I'd always been a carburetor guy and I'd always loved being on the dyno. Me and Spinny worked really close together through the years, you know, with, uh, Greg Ganell and all the all the people that worked you know at the engine shop and by this time you know we we had twenty some people in the engine shop and uh when the fuel injection came, I think we were up to a hundred and five employees and it's like they just didn't want in the engine shop just in the engine oh, shop wow. because yeah. we were we had a r and d engine shop at that time you know it things were we had we had went to CNC cylinder heads and I mean it had it had changed so so much through the years and, and roller lifters and roller rocker arms I mean and, and there were times when, when we were gaining 25 and 30 horsepower through the year and it, the development was happening so so fast so you you know you, you couldn't hardly keep up without having a research and development department then uh, when fuel injection came fuel injection brought in all kinds of stuff that we weren't, that I wasn't really prepared for be able to analyze the own throttle time, the brake pressures and this and that. And it got to be where this is my feeling. It got to be where the older guys like me, uh, everything was designed on the computer. The cylinder heads were done on the computer. Yeah. The camshafts yeah. done on yeah. the computer and this yeah. and that. And I felt like my value was getting low. It's like, like, I can remember times when me and Spinny would go in and do a piston test or or take five camshafts, run them all in one day, and then say, okay, let's go back and change this one up. And then when you make power, you have that feeling inside like, man, we're making gains here. Well, all that was kind of gone. So then uh, in 2018, Richard's like, I want to take this Xfinity program and I want to turn this thing around and I want to make it to where we can promote younger guys. I want to be able to have younger engineers, younger crew chiefs, younger drivers, and be able to tell if they're going to make it to the Cup Series. So I went into managing, left the engine shop, went back to RCR, went to managing the Xfinity Series, and uh, then in 2019, we won the championship with Reddick, and Reddick is is, uh, exactly what Richard wanted to do. He wanted to take a young guy, promote him up, develop him. Yeah. And his whole team went with him, Randall Burdett and the whole whole team. So it, so it worked really well. And that's what we're doing today. You know, we have Austin Hill and, and Sheldon Creed both, and they're going to both end up in the Cup Series. And so we are basically our department is a stepping stone, and we weed out the weak. I mean, just to say it right, if, yeah. if the guys can't perform, we don't keep them. And it, it works really, really well. You've covered a lot of ground, and you have this unique perspective on
1: Richard Childress Racing. I mean, you were there in the, the lean years, and you were there in the glory years, and now you're there now. You started in 1984, and that was the year that Dale came back to the team. And that year, there were some engine problems. What do you remember about that, and what do you remember about
4: what was done about it? so i i can remember richard helped us solve the problem so back in the day all of the oil was going to the top end of the engine and it was through it was actually bleeding through the lifters yeah and uh we came up and developed actually lifter sleeves to put in there that helped control the oil and the thing was we could run them on a the dyno and Back then, we didn't have chassis dynos or anything, and everything would be fine. We didn't have endurance dynos. Now, it's so much different. We have these AVL dynos uh-huh. where they uh-huh. they can run. They can tell you now exactly how hard the engine can go and how many cycles it can turn. And, you know, we did everything in miles back then. They know what loads are on the engines. And so uh, when we figured it out, I mean, it was a – we had tore everything up, and – you know, you look at the parts, and it's like, okay, it's you know, it's, it's starving for oil. Why is it doing? You know, our lines. You know, you're you're searching and you're searching, you're searching. And when we finally figured it out, I mean, it was a it was a fix overnight almost. Yeah. And uh, we tore up a lot of stuff. We ran twelve laps. I think it was an eighty four in both Pocono races. It was five laps in one race and seven laps in another race. Yeah. So that that uh, and that was because of the long straightaways and all the oil was going to the top end, and we were basically starving the engine for oil. How much of the issue was due to engineering and mechanics and
1: the parts and pieces of the engine, and how much of the issue was due to Dale's
4: right foot? So, <laughs> so, so. Not very much of it was due to Dale's right foot because what was happening was is we we were taking 010 blocks back in the day. Still had the oil filter pads on them and we were taking these blocks and it, it was so crazy that years later you found out that okay, we can sonic test these blocks and we can figure out which one has core shift and there's things to look at on the blocks and it'll take you three days to get one of those blocks ready. And... Where the lifter sleeves were, you know, the, them things weren't like 125 thousandths long. Then when you put a big camshaft in it, it and the way that, you know, you got to have clearance because we would get the engines really hot and the engines would be cold. And basically, it was hemorrhaging around the lifter, lifter bores. Yeah. We put those sleeves in there that actually give us twice the material, and it fixed the problem overnight. So it was just it wasn't really a, a right foot thing and and we had figured out that if we could just you know we never really made the most power we figured out if we could just keep these things running yeah Earnhardt could figure it out there was days when we had a 15th or 16th place car and he'd figure out how to finish 5th if we could keep the engines running
1: So you had a perspective on Dale back then and him coming back to the team. Early on, who was the Dale Earnhardt that you knew in those early years with the team?
4: So Dale Earnhardt was always incredible and misunderstood, and he wanted it that way. (laughs) It was, I can remember that we used to have a trailer. Our trailer was you put a car in the back, and then you raise the car up, and then then the other car goes in it. It was basically a box truck. Uh-huh. It was a Kentucky trailer. All the tires went in the front. There was no lounge. We had we had a hoist where we picked the toolbox up and put the toolbox in, and we were getting ready to leave. I believe it was Michigan, and um, brake lights wouldn't work. And he was like, okay, the green wire's are ground, the yellow wire's the – I mean, yeah. it's like he'd wired up – he knew all that stuff, and he would get in there, and he would work right with us. One of the best – one of the best stories is is that we're Andy Petrie comes in, and we're at Charlotte testing, and Andy has two pages. This is one of his first tests. He has two pages of stuff. We're going to do this, this, this. Earnhardt picks up that notepad and he goes, "We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not <laughs> doing this. We're not doing this." Yeah. And Andy's like, "I, I, I had a plan. I, this is going to send us in a direction." He's like. How fast do you need me to run? Tell me how fast you need me to run. If I run that fast, we we won't do any of this stuff. And it was it was it was like, (laughs) yeah, Earnhardt always got his way. I mean, he 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 always did. He knew what he wanted in a race car. He knew you know you could do all these little bitty things. He he basically knew what he wanted. The uh, I know we're jumping all over the place, but all of these. All of these races that we would go to when we when we did a lot of tests, he he did not like to test. And any time he could get somebody else, we've had Mike Dillon, Neil Bonnet. I mean, we've had yeah. all these people go test for Earnhardt because he didn't want to do it. He hated doing
1: it. Why was that? Why why did he not like testing?
4: He he just he wanted to race. He wanted to win everything, and he just felt like that. All right, he looked at it like, okay, the racetrack's going to change, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. It's probably not going to be the same tires, and and you just get me close, and I'll figure out the rest. He had the ability. We'd be in a race car. We'd be places like at Bristol where you're really, really busy. He could tell who was on the lead lap, who was a lap down, who was running fast, I can remember a couple of times Kirk saying, You're the fastest car, and he would say, Well then why is Rusty getting bigger? Why can I see him in my mirror getting closer to me? How can I be the fastest car? And it, it he had a he had a feel for knowing exactly what he wanted and he also had the ability, he would say stuff to us like, There's a seven sixteenth snap on wrench in turn two. <laughs> <laughs> and Come to find out, there was a 7 yeah. And we were at Michigan one time getting ready to qualify, and we did a qualifying practice, and he shut it off, and he said, the crank just broke. He's like, what? He said, yeah, crank just broke. And that's when we had a qualifying engine in. We carried that thing back, and the crank had broke, and how he, it didn't hurt the block, it didn't hurt anything, the broke, crank broke in between the journals i can remember richard come down looking at that thing say i don't know how he how he knew that but he got it cut off before it hurt anything he was incredible at being able to his feel was incredible he was um he had the ability to to just feel things and be able to know what he wanted there were lots of times when we would go out and we would not qualify good, not practice good. And he'd say, not worried about it. I'll be all right. And then in the race, we were. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. and we were all like, we're not very good. But back in those days, everything was done with the stopwatch. And you were just hoping that maybe you missed him or this or that. He didn't, he went more off of feel. He didn't care about the lap times. He just knew what he wanted it to feel like and how he want, how he wanted the car, you know, to be underneath him.
1: You were telling me a story earlier about Alan Kowicki. Yeah. Yes. Tell,
4: tell me that one. So it was <laughs> uh, it was about 1988, and we were at Darlington. And uh, one of those deals, you know, Darlington's South Carolina, you know, the weather comes would It was about up.
1: 86, wasn't it? Yeah, 86. Okay, a- it yeah, was 86. Yeah, a, yeah,
4: 86. Okay, yeah. And uh, so Earnhardt was big into doing all this team stuff where he – he wanted, you know, when we were at the racetrack, we did stuff together all the time. And so he said, I'm going to get the van. We're going to go eat, boys. So said, well, we got an hour and a half here before we got up to do anything else. So we all jumped in the van. It was me, David Smith, Will Lynn, Kirk Shelmer, Dean. And uh, now who was driving? Uh, the van? So Earnhardt was driving the van. Okay. So he was in his street clothes and this and that. And so we're pulling up. We got pull, get Alan to come over here. So opened the door up said, hey, quickie, come eat with us. We're going to go grab something to eat. He goes, no, no, I've got some things, like, yeah. and Earnhardt wouldn't take no for an answer. He's like, get in the van. We're just going to run down here and get something. To eat. Come on. Well, I still have my driver's suit on. And he's like, be all right. Come on and go eat with us, man. We... <laughs> yeah. And he, like, wouldn't take no for an answer. So, Alan gets in the van, so Earnhardt drives straight to Quincy's and <laughs> – This was when Alan Quickie drove the 35 car. Not not a lot of people remember that, probably. This was before the 7. So we're standing in the line at Quincy's with everybody has has the little trays and stuff, and Alan's so embarrassed he's got his (laughs) uniform on. And Earnhardt is saying, Alan Quickie, right here. (laughs) At
1: at Quincy's. Anybody wants an autograph? (laughs) Yeah.
4: And he loved it, loved it, loved it. But Earnhardt was so amazing about just putting people in those situations. I can remember when we were at Richmond, and I won't be able to tell you the girl's name, but we got off the airplane. I remember we flew Richards 421 up there, and Earnhardt had all these places. He always liked to do the same thing, so we're going to the Italian place to eat. And uh, Reynolds people were there, and the new Winston girl was there. So, Miss Winston. Miss Winston. Okay, yeah. So Earnhardt's like, hey, come on, y'all go eat with us at the Italian place. So um, I'm not sure who the Winston who, – who was with them from Winston, but it was two guys from Winston and a new Winston girl. So we go to the Italian place uh, right there by the airport. And uh, so we get there, and they go, hey, it's uh, – I think I'm not sure – but I think her name was Sharon. Like, it's her birthday today. And so, so awesome. So, do this big deal. Everybody eats and, like, okay, we're going to sing happy birthday to her. So, uh, it's like, all right, boys, we're going to sing happy birthday to her. So, we, we're a happy birthday, happy birthday to you. We got to the part where happy birthday to, and nobody knew what her name was. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, "Happy birthday to you!" You know, <laughs> and then yeah. heart her laughed about it. He's yeah. like, "Sorry, we don't know what your name is, but it, you know, yeah. is is just." No, like, was it actually her birthday? Yeah, it was really her okay, birthday. Yeah, okay, and right. we didn't realize we didn't know what her name was till we got to that part in the song. And happy it, birthday, Miss Winston. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that was her first. That was her first trip, and uh, but he loved. He loved doing stuff like that, and he loved if he didn't. Pinch you or poke you or or grab you or something like that. I mean, you 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 know he did that on a regular basis to the people that he liked. So I can't say enough about how how Richard and Dale, you know, worked. They were really 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 amazing together. Um, it was so funny that so many times when Richard would come in and and fight with the crew chiefs about the gear that's in the car or this or that or because Richard had you know he had driven he had yeah. he knew that when you go to Rockingham you, you you know you don't need to turn all those RPMs and you know when you go to Wilkesbury you don't need to turn And and they paired really really good together they communicated awesome together they you know they would go hunting together they would you know they were really really tight and it helped our team amazingly so 1984,
1: 1985, you won a couple of races a year, each year. But then 1986, it seemed like you guys made a jump
4: and wound up winning the championship that year. What was the difference? We just put it all together. We, we got the engines to where they would run all the time. Um, Kirk Kirk and Dale got to be where they understood each other a little bit better. Um and it, it it's like we won a lot of races but we should have won a whole lot more and you know the point system's what it what it used to be where you know points are points and uh it was just it, it was just like so so easy to do we would just make sure that that nothing came off the car nothing fell off the car and and Earnhardt just figured out how to do it i mean he was he was amazing of taking a car that, that wasn't that good and and being able to figure out how to make it work. And Kirk, Kirk was – actually, Kirk was really brilliant. I can remember in 87, we're going to have a brand-new Speedway car, and that car came out of the Fab Shop, and it was absolutely beautiful. And Kirk took – and he cut that car up. He cut the nose on it. He cut the hood on it. He cut the fenders on it. He cut the back deck lid. And so we go to Daytona, and that car was really fast. I mean, really, really fast. And back then, they just had hand templates they would put on the car. And people were complaining about how this car looks so much different than all the rest of the Chevrolets and this yeah. and that. And I can remember looking at the car when it when it first came out, how beautiful it was. But after Kirk got through working on it, it looked like it had looked <laughs> had surgery done on it because it was all well, patched up. Yes. <laughs> and so so Dick Beatty was he was the guy. So he calls out and he goes, Anybody that wants to see the templates put on the three car, be in pit stall number one at three thirty. Wow. So there's people over there watching, they put all the templates on the car. So we got done. We passed inspection. So then we got ready to put the car cover over the car, and the car cover wouldn't fit. The car was, I think it was four inches longer in the rear and three inches longer in the front. And (laughs) we had made the car cover off of a basic car. And it's like, what do we do now? (laughs) We ended up tearing the car cover to get it to go over the car. But uh, Kirk was, you know, you go to the wind tunnel, but it wasn't really like the racetrack. Kirk knew that... You Know those cars when you lay those spoilers down, that getting that spoiler further back makes the car drive a whole lot better. It, it's you know, there's so many things that that happened through the years that you look back on. I can remember back, you know, 86, 87, you know, even even after that, we would go to Victory Lane and it would be like, okay, let's hurry up, and get our picture made. We got to tear the engine down. That back then they. Pulled the engine all the way apart, and they you you know you pulled the cylinder head off of it, and and they they checked the stroke on the crank, and they measured the piston. They did all this stuff in the car, and Earnhardt would say to us, "Boys, we're making history." And you didn't think about it. You know, you were just wanting to get through your job, and we we didn't slow down and enjoy the moment. As you get older, yeah, you look back on stuff. And you you look at them and that was a great great day. You just kind of get it done, and I wish wish would have slowed down a little bit more. But um, that he had he had the vision for. He knew that we were making history, and, and we didn't even really think about it until later on. Nineteen eighty six was good. You won the championship, and that's obviously
1: a good thing. But nineteen eighty seven was something even a step beyond that. I mean. You were this close to winning what five or six, six or seven straight races at the beginning of the year.
4: What was it like to go to the racetrack on that kind of roll? We couldn't hardly do anything wrong. I mean we we had a we had a system. We had had a lot of issues through the years early on, and Richard would come in and say. Richard always had a plan. He'd come in and say, Okay, I want a better checklist. I want you to be able to initial what you so we can look back and say, Who's responsible for this and for that? You know, and was, and we built this stuff through the years and you know, we had got the engines better. We had got you know, we were you know, back then you had qualifying and you would go to some of these races and you would put qualifying engine in and then then you put a practice engine in. Then you'd pull that practice engine out. And then you'd put your race engine in, and these were the same guys that were doing all pit stops. And we just figured out how to make each guy responsible for his part, and you would know that who whose part it was. And then that that takes you know you don't want your part to have any issues. You don't want you want to make sure that that everything that it's underneath you is taken care of and we didn't take any chances we had uh, we had the best of everything we were able to buy back in the day you know you know Richard didn't have car dealerships yeah. or rental trucks or this or that and we were on a really tight budget but you know after we had started winning Richard give us anything that we needed we would go to the racetrack with new starters and new alternators and and just made our parts better and better and better and Chevrolet actually got their stuff a lot better the the cylinder heads and the blocks had got better and you know it just we grew together
1: so dale was obviously dominating on the racetrack and he was becoming a rock star at that point but on pit road you guys had a cast of characters as well you had chocolate the big burly bear or whatever you had will with the rock star hair Mm -hmm. you had david smith who was praying for everybody (laughs) What was it like on the road, being the team to beat, and that cast
4: of characters? So, so it was it was incredible how close everybody, how how tight everybody was together. I mean, it, it's like um, if we were down, David did a really good job of. It didn't matter what was happening. David was like, "We're winning." Chocolate had a niche for for detail stuff. I mean, it's so crazy. Is is he chocolate would do anything? It didn't matter what it was, and and I can remember that we made him. He was the underneath guy. The first thing he did is is he he made this little kit that had every everything he needed, every wrench, you know, every really? yeah. I mean, it, wow. it, and you know, it was it was like we took ownership for our own part, and you know, Kirk Kirk let us handle. I can never remember a time. When Richard or Kirk ever had to come and say, "Okay, we need to be at the racetrack at this time, and we're going to do this," we're going, you know, we just meshed really good. It was like like everybody was so different that it worked really, really good together. Um, we had we had just about everything covered. Everybody thought that you know chocolate was a uh, Hells Angel or or whatever, and yeah. da, and David was a preacher, and and you know Will Lynn was a rock star, and I mean we had we had everything covered. What was your role in, in in that? So I was a yeah. designated driver. I, 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 I yeah, I've never I've never had any alcohol, never drank or this or that, yeah. and and. I I made sure that you know Kirk would tell me you know take care of the guys or this or that. Kirk stayed in his room and studied a lot. I mean he, he really he rarely would go out to eat with us. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. David Smith he knew where he wanted to, he knew what he was going to eat he knew where we were going to go. You know Will Lynn, he he was uh, our chairman of fun. Will always had a good yeah. time. Will always had a plan. <laughs> you know and this and yeah. that so. We worked. We worked so so good together. I mean, it was it was a great group. Hey, race fans! John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks, and our forty-eight week automotive technology program students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today.
1: NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. When Danny Lawrence was in high school, he actually owned a record and actually worked races at Rockingham for a couple of years in the 1980s. And Steve, that is one of the things that I love about doing this show is hearing the backstories of how people got involved in the sport. We've had a lot of people go racing because their families were involved. We had dues working as a bus driver and racing on the side, but I'm fairly certain that Danny is the first person we've had on the show who owned his own wrecker in high school. He wasn't working for somebody else. He wasn't working for the local filling station. (laughs) He owned his own wrecker. Danny is the only guy
5: I have ever met who owned a wrecker while he was in high school. The only one, never knew another one.
1: I wonder what kind of deals he worked with these buddies who got in trouble with their cars. (laughs) I could see some
5: income there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Steve, what's a job you had in high school that might surprise some people?
5: I sold magazine subscriptions door to door. All
1: right, big boy. Sell me a subscription to Winston Cup scene right now. Right now? Yeah, do it. Do it. I want to hear your pitch. I want to hear your hokey pitch.
5: Listen, this publication, Winston Cup scene, I know you've heard of a guy named Steve Wade, very famous in racing circles, knows everybody and everybody knows him. Now, if you want the real scoop on what's going on, you got to read this publication and read this guy and you read the other books in there too, because he's got talent in more ways than one, he selects only the best writers. He only made one mistake his entire career. You know, get it anyway. What do you think?
1: I'm going to slam the door in your face myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that happen. (laughs) I worked at McDonald's and I bagged groceries at HG Hills grocery store there in Nashville. And I also worked in a couple of baseball card shops. Now you're in your element, right? Sir, I am. I once sold a set of 1984 Topps baseball cards to pay for the first date with my future ex-wife. Man, I miss those baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, also, I want to get your reaction to this quote from Danny. He said, Dale Earnhardt was always misunderstood, and he wanted it that way. What was Danny getting at there?
5: That There was more to Dale Earnhardt than just this tough, no-nonsense, stubborn race driver. There was another side. And that side was basically, well, one better word, a kind, understanding side. A side he really didn't want the public to see. But if you were friends with Dale Earnhardt, you saw that side a lot.
1: Steve, why didn't he want people to see that side of him? Was it solely an image thing where he wanted to uphold the whole intimidator, one tough customer, man in black personas? Or do you think it was more to that?
5: I think there's more to that because I think his racing persona was everything those slogans said he was. You know, tough, intimidator, man in black, all that. That was the racing Dale. I'm talking about the real, the man. I'm talking about Dale, the man. Let me preface all this by saying, if you were a friend of his, okay? He cared about you. He cared about how you were feeling. He cared about your opinions. He'd like to have fun with you. I mean, Dale and I used to have long conversations that had nothing to do with racing. I mean, we would talk everything from politics to religion to him growing up, him asking me questions about college, which he had never been able to attend, of course. So we shared a friendship in that way. And that was a
1: different guy talking to me all those times. Knowing Alan Kowicki the way that you did. How do you think he reacted when Dale kind of punked him into going to a nearby Quincy's restaurant while Alan was still in his <laughs> Quincy's driver's uniform?
5: <laughs> I, <laughs> well, like Dale, Alan had two sides. Now, there seemed to be that side of that Grace driver who ran his team and was a hard line perfectionist. Alan had a great sense of humor. And I think that sense of humor came out when Dale punked him into that Quincy restaurant,
1: I think he got a good laugh out of it. Many people have mentioned Dale pinching people and putting them in headlocks and all that. And Danny said that he didn't do those kinds of things unless he really liked you.
5: That is very true. Very true. My head can tell you stories by their headlocks.
1: Whew. Which brought back a memory. Jeannie's favorite NASCAR story ever is when we were at the Brooks and Dunn concert that RJ Reynolds sponsored up in New York city. The year that Terry Labonte won the Winston cup championship, there was a catered dinner and everybody's waiting in line to get their food. And somebody pats me on the butt and it was Dale. So maybe he did like me after all, or maybe that was just his way of cutting the line. I don't know. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he just wanted to cut the line. Yeah, (laughs) And I also love what Danny said about Dale telling them that they were making history and how difficult that was at the time to see. And yeah, they would go do their victory lane photos and all that kind of thing. But then they had to go tear everything down in inspection, head home and get ready for the next race. And what Danny said was the exact same thing that a lot of my Apollo era mission control friends said. They didn't know that they were making history either. They were just doing their jobs nose to the grindstone and never really looking around and taking the time to appreciate what they were in the process of accomplishing. I think the people
5: that you were just talking about and the good race teams have the same effect. In other words, you can be making history. You can be winning races. That's all well and good. But when you're set in a routine, that is a good one that needs you to be at your best to prepare so you can win those races. So you can go into outer space. That's the mindset you always have
1: making history doesn't really register while you're thinking that way. Making history is something that we're going to be touching on big time in our second segment. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. So, listeners, I don't know about you, but are you ready to give this a shot? (laughs) Again, listeners, go to exactly the two-hour mark of the 1998 Daytona 500 broadcast on NASCAR Classics. And when I give the word, press play, and we will all be watching this together. So, Steve and Danny, are you ready for this?
5: I'm not so sure about myself.
1: (laughs) I think Danny's
5: pretty confident, but... (laughs)
1: Steve, thanks for the encouragement, bud. (laughs) All right, listeners, ready or not, press play now. So, Danny and Steve, let's set the stage here. Where was everybody at this point? Steve, you were, I guess you were in the press box, weren't you? I was, yes,
5: in the press box.
1: All right. Were you calling the race on the radio, or was that Deb that day?
5: No, that was Deb doing that. That was her usual job at track, and she enjoyed doing that. I was paying attention to what was going on because at the stage we're starting to see this race at right now, there was once again, up front. And now that guaranteed nothing
1: at Daytona. Now, Danny, I'm assuming you were on pit road.
4: Yeah. So I was, uh, I was the second gas man for chocolate Myers, So, you know, especially at Daytona and Talladega, you always had to be ready. So we were, uh, of course, and just like Steve said, we were always – we are at this point a lot of times in the, in the past and uh, just basically waiting for something bad to happen at, at this point.
1: <laughs> That's the <a> spirit.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Optimistic. Well, well, honestly, Steve, I don't remember where I was exactly because I was in the infield, so I was in the infield media center watching it on TV with the rest of the nation. But at some point, I guess you and – Deb got together and called the sidebar. My sidebar that day was on Dale's crew's reaction. If, and when they won the Daytona 500. So at some point I know that I made my way out to pit road and I was there in the Dale Earnhardt, Richard Childress racing pits. Me and a thousand other people. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say it was probably pretty thick at that point.
4: Well, you know, the crazy thing is, is that happened a lot of times before is is when it gets down to the last 25 laps of the race, more and more people started coming over to get more and more and more friends. But we'd seen that over and over and over. And then when something bad happened, it's like, where'd all of our friends go? I mean So so we'd seen that before.
1: Danny, it was during this caution with about 25 laps to go that somebody really unexpected got onto the radio and actually started talking to Dale.
4: Uh, a lot of people don't know, but uh, Bill Jr. and Dale became really good friends. They both had boats. They spent a lot of time away from the racetrack together, and they they uh, teased each other a lot. And so they called him Captain Jack when he was on this boat, and that's what Dale always called him, is Captain Jack. And Captain Jack came on the radio, and, and uh, he was trying to give Dale a boost of confidence that you can do this. And then... It, you know, all these like Liverpools. Dale
1: Earnhardt needed a boost yeah. of confidence. Yes. yes, yes.
4: <laughs> and the crazy thing is, is when, when Dale would go to Daytona, he would, he was strictly business when he got in the car. He didn't, there was no playing. There was no, he was focused on the job at, at hand. And for somebody to come on the radio that wasn't the spotter, that wasn't Richard, you know, that wasn't Larry McReynolds and this and that, that was, that was out of the norm. But I, I think it actually, it lightened the mood a little bit because we had been there so many times and had so many issues in the closing laps, you know, but to think that Bill Junior would come in and, and uh to even know that he had our frequency in his radio. I mean it's <laughs> Captain Jack came on the radio and he gave them a, you know, a boost to accomplish. You can do it. And then you know, Richard's like, "Who is that?" You know, we weren't, we'd never heard him on the radio before. We never, you know, and we first thought it was a race band. And then he said, "It's Captain Jack." And then that's when Earnhardt took over and said, "I'm going to do the best I can do." I mean, it was, it was, it was hilarious at the time.
1: On the restart, Danny Mike Skinner lined up right behind Dale. They both had RCR decals on their cars, and they had RCR patches on their uniforms. But what kind of teammates were they really at Daytona?
4: Well, they both wanted to win. Mike Skinner. This is Daytona 500, and you know that I really believe the plan was, and it kind of fell apart. Is is to to try to to be teammates to the last lap, and then uh, Skinner got shuffled out there and never could make his way back. Um, so it would have been it would have been nicer because they wouldn't have wrecked each other but they would have raced each other really hard on, on that last lap but uh Skinner Skinner kind of got used up there and can never make his way back to the front I've hey. always heard from crew chiefs and team managers
5: and team owners that what you just said is always the perfect scenario at Dayton or talladega I want right. you two guys to race together until the last lap and then it's between the both of you and that's about the only way you can really hope it would be, but it never seemed to turn out that way too much.
4: Right. Well, I'm going to tell you, Richard, uh, he had his challenges at times, you know, with, with Mike and Dale because they they were, you know, they both wanted to win and they were both, I'm not going to say hard heads, but really determined. But Richard, uh, numerous times he had, he had in our meetings, he had said, do not – do not lean on each other. Do not wreck each other. Do not hurt each other. And you know they—they—they they, they never really did. They—they—you uh, know they might have rubbed each other here and there, but they—they would have—they would have never purposely wrecked each other. But for the win, I could see them uh, dicing it up for the win. But then Skinner kind of got shuffled back, and he could never make it back towards the front.
1: Now, did I just hear you say that Dale Earnhardt and Mike Skinner were not hard headed? <laughs>
4: well. You
1: must have known yeah. different people than I knew.
4: <laughs> this is going out to the world. Okay. They were stubborn, they were stubborn and determined. I'm not going to say they were hard headed. Okay. They were setting their ways, both of them. Both of them saw things differently. How about Very that?
1: Very diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Loved, Danny. loved
4: them both. Loved yeah. both of them. Danny,
1: you mentioned earlier that you had been in this position before with Dale leading late in the Daytona 500. I think back to 1986 when he ran out of gas. 1990, of course, yeah. with the tire going down on the last lap. 1991, you had the, the seagull early in the race. <laughs> then you had 1997 when he went up and over and on his lid and everything. Was there any one of those losses in particular that stood out to you as the most disappointing, or was it all one great big combined disappointment?
4: Well, it got to be where, you know, we would we would go to Daytona and a lot of years Earnhardt would win everything, you know, uh, all the races down there. And then we would get to get to the Daytona 500. And it, it was, it was not just the 14 days we were at Daytona. We had been back, back in the day, back in 98, they didn't have a, a testing policy. We would go to Daytona three or four times in December and January, just to test the cars. Then we would go to Talladega if we didn't feel like we were good. I mean, there there was so much put into that race and it was so prestigious to win. And all the people that had won it, you know, Dell felt like that he just was never gonna get it. And we, you know, we felt that for him. So uh when in during ninety eight, we we kind of tried to do everything different than we'd done before we had We'd focus all of our practice sessions and this was all a dream of Larry. We focused all of our practice sessions on long runs and trying to make the car drive good. And we knew exactly how much fuel mileage we would be able to get. We knew about the tire wear, you know, Larry was incredible at keeping up with track conditions and weather. I think Larry could tell you back in 1990, what what the temperature was at North Wilkesboro Speedway. <laughs> he had, <laughs> he had, he had briefcases of notes well so we go to we go to Daytona and we ran really good in all the races and we go um the way it worked back then you you know you go through all these races all these practices and then we you put the race motor in saturday morning and you run an hour of practice on saturday and uh the race motors always basically were newer stuff so that you wanted to make 500 miles the Everything we'd run, our qualifying engine, our, our our qualifying race engines, and all that were were engines that had miles on. They were more uh, more used up. Basically, we put the race motor in, and uh, we went out to practice. and Dale said, "I can't keep up." He said, "It's it's off." And we had an engine. I, c- I can remember that uh, that was one sixty nine was in the car. And we had an engine. It was the first engine that we had that had roller cam bearings in it. Now, this was the new engine. This was the SB2. We just had started running the SB2. And we'd never raced an engine with roller cam bearings. We'd only qualified. But it was really, really good. And so I've actually got a picture in my office where where Richard's leaning over the car. And Earnhardt's got his arm around me. And we're looking at the engine. And he says, uh... It's 365 days before I can win this race again. And I don't feel like I can do it with the race engine that's in the car. And he tells Richard, he says, if we don't make it, I'll make it up. But I want to try, I want to try the engine that was not tested, thoroughly tested. We've qualified with roller cam bearings. We have you know, we have done, but we we had never run a race with them. That uh, you know, when you're talking about four horsepower, that makes a big difference. So, uh, the decision was made to change engines. We put in 121 was a race engine. We put it in and we never cut a lap with it until the start of the race. And on lap three, Earnhardt said, Boys, we got something for them. So, of course, I was holding my breath. 98 was the year that Richard made me chief engine builder. And I was holding my breath. Oh, my God, we're racing. Because back then, we didn't have simulators, we didn't have, we, we tested everything on the racetrack. Well, you know, we didn't have CNC equipment like like we do now. It was just so much of a different time. But uh, from the start, Earnhardt felt like that we had a really, really good piece. We just it was just left up to us not to mess it up.
1: You had two Ford teammates right behind you at this point. You've got Jeremy Mayfield in second, and then Rusty Wallace, his teammate, in third place. How big of a concern was it that you had teammates behind you and Ford teammates behind you? or were you worried about basically everybody at this point?
4: We were concerned about everybody, but Dale wasn't concerned about anybody. He, (laughs) uh, it was, he was, the crazy thing is, is, is Dale was so amazing. He could tell you, he could tell you who was a lap down. He could tell you who was running in what position. He could tell you who was really, really good. And, uh, but at those races, he wouldn't hardly talk on the radio. You know, and there's times when he would say, We would say, All right, Pit four tires. Well he would say, Let's do two tires, let's do no tires. And then there's times that we said, We're not we're just gonna get fuel only. And he would say, Give me I'm not leaving till you give me four tires. He actually knew what the car needed, and he was right 99% of the time. But he never said anything about Jeremy being behind him. He never said anything about how good Bobby Labonte was. He he was just focused forward. I mean, it was whoever was behind him who he was going to deal with next. He, he never he never came on the radio and said, you know, I've got to this or I've got to hold this guy off. You know, he never even mentioned any, you know, he he was just doing his deal.
1: The top five at this point, Dale Earnhardt, Jeremy Mayfield, Rusty Wallace, Bobby Labonte, Jeff Gordon. You've got four Winston Cup champions. You've got four future NASCAR Hall of Famers. You've got Jeremy Mayfield, who is young and aggressive. And a couple of years later, he proved once and for all that he didn't mind laying a fender to Dale (laughs) (laughs) in order to win a race. Ken Schrader is in the mix. He had wrecked in his qualifying race and broke his sternum. And he was driving this race all bandaged up and taped up and everything. As the race wound down, what was your mood?
4: So here's the crazy thing is, is Earnhardt would come on the radio and say, what are them guys thinking? They won't stay in line. I mean, he is, he is trying to, he's leading the race and he's watching those guys behind him. He's like, why are they racing like this? At this time, he wanted he wanted four or five cars to get away from everybody. Yeah. You know, they're racing side by side. They're bringing the whole field into it. You know, he he was he was narrating back for us, <laughs> it, and, it, and it was so crazy he could do that. But then all of a sudden, he would say there's 7 16th crashman wrench laying in turn 1 down there you know and it's that's what it that's what it would that's what it would be but so my heart's beating 100 miles an hour and and we're all re- about to throw up just okay cuz over and over and over and we're basically we're just like what's it going to be this time what's going to happen what's what's going to be and uh you know we're just they are just sitting there just basically numb ready for it. And you you you're just sitting there thinking, okay, it, it's come, it's got it's gotta something's gotta happen.
5: So yeah, Danny, when you pointed out that Dale asked about what they were doing, mixing it up back there. That was my own question.
4: Dale was amazing in the car. I mean, there's so many things that he that he was aware of that that you know it was it was it was crazy. He was he's racing against these guys and he's wondering, you know, why are they doing what they're doing back there and, and holding off the lead. And, and believe it or not, back then, uh, Danny colored was a great spotter, but Dale didn't want anybody to talk to him. He did all this by himself. He, he mm-hmm. could tell when a car, how close a car was to him. He cleared himself. He, you know, he, he knew when to go high. He knew when to go low. He knew how to, he knew how to pass lap cars and this and that. So, um, it's, pr- it's pretty much all on his shoulders from this point on.
1: By this time in the late 1990s, you had some people who had moved on into different positions. David Smith was over on the 31 team. Will was overseeing, I guess, the Bush and the truck programs at that time. Was there any one person in particular that you missed being there?
4: Well, so the the cool thing about it was, is that the way Richard had it set up, we we're we're one team, one family. I mean, it, it was it was David Smith and Will Lynn and Chocolate Myers and every you know chocolate was there with us. All these guys were still a part of the deal. Um we worked together on our car, you know, we we the 31 car was basically just like the three car. I mean, the engines were basically the same. So um uh, we won it as an organization. We've got about nine laps to go. It's getting down to it. And Danny, I can't help
1: but think about one of your former teammates at this point, Kirk Shelmerdine. I talked to him about the 1990 Daytona 500 in particular when Dale cut down that tire on the last lap and Derek Cope went on to win the race. And from the sound of it, that one hurt Kirk pretty deeply. He had a 40-second
3: lead with 20 laps to go. Yeah. And... We were running under 50 seconds. I mean, it was inside of 10 seconds of lapping the field. Yeah. I mean, he was catching the back of the pack. Yeah. and he was. I remember, he he was getting nervous. You know, it was, it was a long green run, and he's like, "Y'all say something. Tell me. You know, how's it? What's how's everything? We got enough gas or any good?" Though? And Richard keys his mic and said, "It wasn't whatever it was. It wasn't in English." If Dale was nervous, Richard was throwing up. <laughs> he couldn't even speak. And I don't know, you know, I said something like, 20 laps carving's go, everything's good. You know, 20 more laps and we're home. Just, yeah. just 20 good laps around here. You've done it a thousand times. You know, I mean, I was the only one that could say anything. I remember that. I don't even remember exactly what it was. Take me through that last lap. We had been really good at Daytona for several years now. Yeah. You know, everybody knew Dale's one of the best drivers ever there. Childer's always wanted a 500, he used a race car driver, he that races stock cars, it's the masters, you know, it's everything. Dale really wanted one bad and we all wanted it badly because we had just been so close so many times, like kicked their ass forever and didn't get to finish, you know. Yeah. So like there we were, I mean, we, we had him killed until the last lap. That was the only s- sick day I ever took off in 12 years, in 30 years. Wow. Was that Monday. After that, I could not get out of bed. I just, it was so such a letdown. How many times can you go down there and have them killed like that? Finally, we had our race, you know? They could throw the cars, they could do whatever the hell they wanted. Didn't matter.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: And just, it was like it was ours and then it wasn't. Like, yeah. I don't know. It just got to me. It took a piece, if you will, that doesn't get
1: put back. And then there was Will. Lind, who had been the rear tire changer for years before moving into management there at RCR. Here's Will from the Seam Vault podcast.
2: You're sitting there and they they come by and and you're like, been here before, you know, we got this thing and, and uh, you know, everybody didn't have a monitor on their pit box at the time, no big screens to watch. And uh, they're going down the back straightaway and the crowd all jumps up thought they wrecked or something you know and we're all got our neck stretched out looking toward turn four waiting to see our car come by and it never came by or it came by after everybody passed him with a flat tire that was a tough one yeah that was uh, um you know he went straight to the garage and went down there to meet him you can see the video man the look on his face was a, a total disbelief
1: now, weren't you the first person to the
2: car? I was one of them. I've seen yeah. the video several times, and you know, there's press was all over him. And it's about as big, a, there was probably about as many people waiting to talk to him as there were. And the funny thing is, nothing against Derek because there was a lot of good, a lot of good friends on that, on that team at the time. And, um, Buddy Parrott and a bunch of those guys on, they were pitted right next to us. And so, you know, we're sitting there like, What the hell just happened? And they're all jumping up and down. And
1: And you're pitted right next to each other. We're pitted
2: right next to each other. I remember that very clearly because, you know, I'm sitting there. You didn't didn't even know what happened because he didn't say anything at first. And and, um, it was just on to the next one. You told me a story
1: about leaving the racetrack and flying over the track Mm -hmm. that day. What do you remember
2: about that? Man, it just – it was just a yearly thing, you know. You flew in down there, going, "Damn, we're, we're going to get you this time," and we flew out of there, going, and it happened again. Yeah, you know, the same the the year that that Daryl won it, um, you know, we ran out of gas, and you know, just it, it was just like, how many ways can we lose this damn race?
1: Danny, sounds like you guys needed some group therapy or something after the 1990 Daytona 500.
2: Well,
4: I'll tell you that uh, 1990 Daytona 500 that that was rough. Uh, we did not have any group therapy session though, but we did talk about um, you know, on the way home, you know, about how hurtful it was and how how cool Earnhardt was about the whole thing. You know, he said it wasn't our day, man. It just wasn't our day. You know, we led over 150 laps and we'd been so good down there the whole time at Daytona in 1990 and um it just seemed like it was going to be a breeze, but it it we got the the big reality check, I guess you could say there on that last lap.
1: So Danny, John Andretti, and Lake Speed are wrecking here, and Danny Culler calls it on the radio. What are you thinking at this
4: point? Well, you're you're thinking, you know, pretty much thinking. I was personally watching Bobby Labonte, how good he was. The eighteen car, he could. He continuously stayed up towards the front. Even though he kept getting shuffled out, he would work his way back. I I was afraid that's who we were going to have to race.
1: Did Rick Mast get a Daytona 500 ring for being the (laughs) pick at that point?
4: (laughs) No, he didn't, but we probably should have.
1: (laughs) Because if he's not there, I'm not sure what happens coming to that yellow flag. (laughs) Danny, what goes through your mind watching this celebration on pit road?
4: It, it, it was, it gives you a feeling inside that you just cannot believe all the hard work, all the dedication, all the losses that we had, uh, you know, and knowing that Richard and Dale had, had put so much into this and we had, you know, we had corporate people from GM. I mean, it's it, Wrangler. It, it was absolutely a, an incredible feeling. And I can remember in victory lane, uh, Dale was so, so happy. And, and he said, we're going to cherish this and we're going to take our time. And we're never going to forget this day. Uh, and you know, they're screaming over the radio, 20 years of trying, you know, <laughs> twenty years, you know, the, yeah, and, and so it was, it was almost like it wasn't real. Um, uh, but it was, it was a, a magnificent feeling to have inside and know that you had something to do with it and Dale Earnhardt finally went into Daytona 500. Well, you know,
5: Danny today, NASCAR has overtime, right? You guys won that race under cars fair and square as you guys had to do overtime as it is today. I'm sure things would have been really tense then.
4: Oh yes, uh, for, for sure. Um, but you know, I can say this right now. Uh, I feel confident he would have held them all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or it would have been one heck of a wreck. (laughs) That's right. Here's the RC interview. There's a Danny Lawrence sighting in the background. Danny, it looks like you had tears in your
4: eyes, didn't you? I did have tears in my eyes. It was, I mean, it was those, those cars and his ability you know, we put our heart and soul in that, in that, in all of that, and to finally, finally, you know, to, to go through all those years of going home and, you know, carrying a car in a basket or tore up or this or that. And 99% of the time, it was none of our doing. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And to, to, to miss out, you know, we won the, they, they laughed, we won the, daytona 499 multiple times but we just never won the 500 and to finally get it and to see how happy dale and richard were uh to to never be able to say that we didn't win the daytona 500 because we were getting to the point to where we we've won everything but the daytona 500 and to be able to say that we won the 500 that was a major major deal back in the day
1: you talked in your interview this week about dale saying that rcr was making history but you that you didn't really take time to appreciate it. That being said, how long did it take for it to sink in that you had won the Daytona 500?
4: It was on, it was actually on Monday morning when we were putting the car in Daytona USA. So after, after the race, after, after we got through the victory lane, the victory lane, that was the longest victory lane celebration (laughs) we'd ever had because usually, uh, when we win races, it would like, okay, hurry up. and Let's get everything tore down. They pulled the cylinder head off the engine. You know, they, they did all the engine stuff, did all the car stuff. Well, they had took Dale and Richard away. You know, they're doing all these press conferences and stuff. And there were six NASCAR officials saying that everything you take off this car is going back on it because we're going to put it in Daytona USA. You're not taking the carburetor, no parts and pieces. This car is going in Daytona, USA, exactly like it is. So it was. It was about twelve thirty at night before we got the car put back together. So then, no the kid. next morning, we right. came in and we secured the car and. You know it was so crazy. You know, every a lot of people weren't prepared for that. A lot of people just had the uniforms on and this and that. And it was Richard and Dale had suit jackets. They were they were ready for it. But when we put that car in Daytona, USA, and we everybody else was gone, the racetrack was quiet, and it was just us putting that car. That's when it started to sink in.
1: Of course, this is everybody on pit road shaking hands and lining up to meet him. Were you aware of that or had you already gone to victory
4: lane? I'd already, I, I was aware of it after the fact Okay, and and it was kind of going on. We all went to victory lane and, and Dale wasn't showing up. He wasn't coming. He, you know, it's like, where's he at (laughs) You know, and what's, what's he doing? And, and, (laughs) uh, and it, uh, J.R. Rhodes said the crazy thing is, is that all the teams lined up on pit road and they're they're shaking Dale's hand and he'll be here in a few minutes. And you know, that, that took about 15 minutes for him to do I mean, it was, it was the craziest sight of, but, uh, you know, it just, it, it really, you know, it was really touching to be able to see that all those guys out there really felt like he deserved that win and to be able to, you know, have all those guys congratulate him. That was a neat deal. That
5: was a sight we had never seen before at Daytona and never seen since. It go. indicated to me that every single guy on pit road knew how hard you guys had worked to win the 500, how much bad luck you had had trying to win the 500. And they were just as happy for you as you guys were for yourself. Yeah, it was, it was a great day.
1: Danny, what was that following week like at the shop? Surely it wasn't business as usual. Or was everybody still kind of walking on there?
4: Well, so you got to remember is, as we'd been gone to Daytona and back, back in the day, we had, uh, our pit crew was our road crew. So we didn't have people back in the shop building cars, even though that we, you know, we had our rock and ham and all of our cars kind of roughed in. We had, we had a lot of work to do to go and, you know, to go these next few races. And, and the crazy thing is, is that Richard always said, the most important race is the next race so we we were gone from the shop we didn't get back to the shop till monday afternoon we actually worked late monday night trying to get the cars ready and uh i can remember the uh when the truck left like we gotta you know we gotta we've never been a points leader when we left daytona and we were you know we've got a, a opportunity here that that we can capitalize on but um It was strictly business. When we got back to shop, we had to, we had to work, work, work.
1: Steve as a journalist. We're not supposed to root or anything like that for any one particular driver to win or team to win. But how easy was it to write that race lead that day?
5: That was very easy because anytime you see something that you really don't expect or is truly, truly unique. This was new, this was refreshing. And so that made it very simple and easy to write that page.
1: Well, Steve, it couldn't have been, it could not have been that hard to write because you had 20 years to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I had three half page sidebars at race. I had Chad little and Ernie Irvin, were they even in the race? I don't remember, but, uh. You got that sidebar
5: in victory lane type of stuff, right? I mean, you were with the crew and everything, right? Yeah. You had the best sidebar of the day by far, and that couldn't have been hard for you to write either.
1: Well, my third sidebar was on the reaction of the Richard Childress racing crew. And yes, Danny, I did quote you in that story, but also the one thing that really stood out to me about that day and about that sidebar, David Rogers, Had had a really big day, even before the checkered flag, his wife, Beth had given birth that morning to their first child, a baby daughter named Cassidy Leanne to get there that morning. He hopped on board a charter plane. He made it to pit road about 30 laps into the race, but before the team's first pit stop. So David Rogers had a really big day.
4: Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did.
1: Didn't get any bigger than that. <laughs> and I suggested to David on pit road, you know, if you have a baby and Dell wins the Daytona 500, maybe you guys need to have one every year for the Daytona 500. <laughs> he said, I'll have to talk to Beth about that. One. <laughs> well, I can tell you this for sure my wife would not have been on board with that plan. (laughs) (laughs) And here's David in victory lane with Dale and Dale congratulates him on the baby. And I'm sure that that's a moment that David and his family will never forget. Danny, just to wrap things up. What does it mean to you to be a part of what is probably one of the two or three most iconic moments in NASCAR history? And I know that's a, hard question to ask but everybody who knows anything about nascar or cares anything about nascar knows that day and they know about that win and you were a big part of that so what does it mean to you to be a part of that
4: it's just it's an incredible feeling it's something you you know it's like winning an award that never goes away i mean it's you sit there on the other side, if we would have never won a Daytona 500, they would always say Dale Earnhardt won everything but the Daytona 500. And to go down there and be as dominant as we were and, you know, winning all those uh, qualifying races through the years with not, not the best car over and over and over and to be so close so many times and to win that race, it was just a, a, a accomplishment that, it, you don't know what it was going to feel like till it happened, but you know till this day I still get chills when you when you see the end of that race and you see Dale in victory lane. You see some of those pictures and you know Richard and Dale hugging each other. It was it's just an amazing, incredible feeling, and I feel very fortunate to be a part of the team that that won it in ninety eight. Hi, this is Bobby Labonte, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter "scene" at checkout for 10% off. speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com.
1: This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Christopher DeHarty has a question for us. What non-racing sporting event was the most enjoyable for you to attend and why? How about it? I know you had season tickets to the Carolina Panthers for a long time, but the way that you fussed about the team, I don't know how enjoyable that was for you. <laughs>
5: Well, Rick, I'm going to get sentimental here. I think the most enjoyable sporting event I ever went to was in 1969, I think it was. There was an old Continental Football League, a minor league football, pro football, and Norfolk had a team. I was attending Old Dominion University, and the only place that this team had to play their home games was at Foreman Field. At Old Dominion. At the time, it was pretty run-down, old place, but it did have a football field. The Norfolk Neptunes (laughs) played in that league. They had a game against, I think it was Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Both these teams were pretty good teams for the league they played in. And what made this one special, it was my first date with a woman who would become my wife, Mark. Our first date was a pro football game. We sat in the end zone with the rest of the university students who didn't have a team of their own to year for at that particular time. We had a heck of a time, a lot of fun. Margaret had never been to a pro football game, and at that time, neither had I. But being up there with the rest of the students, uh, my fraternity brothers, we just had a lot of fun. Margaret had a lot of fun, so much fun that she agreed to a second date with me. And that led to, well, the rest of the story.
1: I loved going to baseball games when we were on the road. My pursuit of my first major league foul ball has grown to be quite legendary in NASCAR circles. (laughs) And in the year 2000, I caught a foul ball on the fly at a Los Angeles Dodgers game one week and another on the fly at a Richmond Braves minor league game less than a week later. So I love me some baseball rick i have seen you chase foul balls
5: and believe me you are a steam locomotive i mean nothing need get in your way weren't you in anaheim one time and i saw you run after a foul ball (laughs) and this kid had to be standing in your way the next thing we saw, this kid with his two feet sticking up from the <laughs> he ground. He wouldn't those, hurt that bad. <laughs> side of the, the seat. That's funny. Shake yes, it off, you, kid. You'll
1: be, you, be fine. <laughs> you, you love you with some foul balls. But also, I remember very distinctly covering the Bush Series race in Nashville in 2002. And Jeannie and the boys always went with me on that trip in particular to visit the East Steps, And Joe and Jennifer had tickets. For the Nashville Predators Phoenix Coyotes NHL hockey game the day after the race. I was looking so forward to going to that game where I could just sit back and relax and enjoy watching a sporting event and not have to worry about covering anything. But there was like a 200% chance of rain during the race, and it was touch and go on getting that race in. And I was doing some serious negotiating with the Lord. Please move that rain out of here. (laughs) And it wasn't because I was any big, huge hockey fan. Joe and Jennifer were hockey fanatics at the time. But all I knew about the sport was the 1980 U.S. Olympic Miracle on Ice team going into the arena that night. I was like, what time is puck off? (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) And sure enough. The race was run to its full length. Scott Riggs scored his first Bush series victory, and I got to go to the Preds game with Joe, Jennifer, Jeannie, and the boys, but the Predators lost six to four to the Coyotes in their final game of the season. But for you, Rick, it's probably just enough that you
5: were there. You were sweating it out, but you made it.
1: Yes. That was cool to get to see. Cool. See, see what I did there? It was cool to get to see hockey, hockey, Ah man. (laughs) Listeners, if you have any questions for Steve and or myself, you can email me at Rick at the scene vault.com or tweet us using ask scene vault.